Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. I have a question for you today before we get the show underway. Here it is. If you're a recovering member of AA at any stage of sobriety and you're diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, would you drink? My special guest today, Alex L., faced that tough choice during his sixth year of sobriety in AA when he was diagnosed with MS, an incurable and disabling disease that attacks the brain, spinal cord, and the entire central nervous system. His future would be one of certain pain, constant struggle, and debilitation of his entire body. But Alex chose not to drink, and today, at 35 years sober, he still relies on his active AA program to get him through each day and to be of service to his fellows. His is an extraordinary story for which the serenity prayer itself could have been written. I first met Alex over 30 years ago, before he contracted MS, when he was an active and engaged member of AA. We attended lots of meetings together, and though we lost touch for a period of time shortly after he got MS, we reconnected several years ago. We resumed a rich and meaningful friendship and credit God and AA for bringing us back into each other's lives. Alex has been an inspiring and influential force for many men and women in the program, and he continues to bring a smile to the faces in the many rooms into which he rolls with his incredible motor chair. And so, with gratitude to God, AA, and all of you for joining me on this podcast, I want to call on my good friend, Alex L. My name is Alex. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me today. We're doing this remotely, of course, because we're in COVID times and it's difficult to get face to face. And of course, it's all about the content anyway. So first of all, before we get going in this conversation, I just want to congratulate you on your AA birthday tomorrow. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you'll be celebrating 35 years sober. Yes, that's correct. That's amazing. So you got sober... 1985. 1985. Wow, that's amazing. So how did you get to AA in the first place? Well, I had a friend, a schoolmate, who was very, very ill and uh, was acting very erratically. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. he started changing. And I said, I said, uh, how come you changed? What's going on? He said, I picked up a chip. And I said, well, what in the world is a chip? Mm-hmm. He said, I'm an AA. Mm-hmm. And, and I just file that in the back of my mind and Mm. certain things happened in my life later on that I remembered that 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 helped him so I thought maybe that's something I need to do well well uh, I think that that'll be a good uh, place to pick up kind of the backstory a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like you know which roads led you to finally become involved with AA well I grew up in Milwaukee Wisconsin the home of Mm -hmm. Schlitz Paps, mm-hmm. Miller, yeah. and and probably even some Budweiser floating around. Oh my goodness! I mean, everybody drank, and uh, in uh, Wisconsin, you could get a uh, minor drinking card at eighteen. And the uh, gentleman who did the minor drinking cards made a mistake on mine and put uh, nineteen forty five on my card, so I was able to legally drink when I was seventeen. Oh my goodness! And uh, <laughs> we had two big minor bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was named Marty Zifko's, and I. The other one was named Weilers, and we used to go there on a pretty regular basis. This was the real stuff. But real by stuff. that time, I'd already been drinking for three or four years on my own. So what age uh, did you start? 
I think I started at 13. We got a, mm-hmm. I, I think we got a square bottle of whiskey. I'm not sure if, it, I think it was a quart. Mm-hmm. And myself and two of my friends uh, started drinking. We'd, we'd like put ourselves like a triangle, like toe to toe. And they both passed out. And I went, huh. <laughs> so I drank the rest of the bottle. And wow. I think I smoked part of a pack of cigarettes or a carton of cigarettes looking out the window or something. So that was your, your first experience with uh, with alcohol, and you got drunk? I suppose. I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, uh, I remember the first sip, and it went. I tasted it. It went all the way down to my knees, uh-huh. down to my ankles, and I said, this is wonderful. I want to do this all my life. Isn't that something? Yeah. So you didn't get sick or anything like that after your first no, time? Or? No, I, I, I'm a bad case. I, I don't get hangovers. Mm. I don't vomit. I just drink. No hangovers. In all the years you drank, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't have hangovers. No, I got. I got the slows about eleven o'clock, but I never really had a hangover. Wow, wow. Because hangovers are some of the reasons why people realize they've got a problem with alcohol if they're having hangovers every day. No, but... I, I never got a headache or anything like that, and wow. I was always the first one up to make breakfast. People, hmm. people hated me. Wow. What was the environment like in your home growing up? Was there alcoholism in, in your family? No, my mom and dad didn't drink. My, my mother's father, I'm, I'm he, sure he had some kind of a problem with control of alcohol. My father, I have no idea what his family did. And he didn't, mm-hmm. he never uh, elucidated anything about how his family grew up. Hmm. But my, my grandfather was pretty rough and my uncles were mm-hmm. pretty rough on my mother's side. I never knew anybody on my dad's side. They were all left in the old country. My goodness. So um, in the environment that you grew up, uh, what was the, the household like when you were when you were young and into your teenage years? Well, I always used to say it was a nut house. We had we were running three businesses out of the house hmm. and we were I mean, they almost never had time to sit down for a meal. We sometimes ate standing up. <laughs> Gotcha. And I, uh, my mother didn't drive, so I was driving her to appointments from the time I was 14 on. And of course, in Wisconsin, you can't drive till you're 16. Mm-hmm. But we were running those three businesses, and my mother would go to one contact, and my father would go to the other, and that way we could possibly sell two of our products at the same time. Now, was was that the is that the re- were your parents not there because of the businesses or? Oh, yeah. They, they just worked all the time. So how about siblings? Uh, do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had a great sister. She was uh, a little bit more than nine years older than mm-hmm. I am. She's great. We're still really good friends. Mm, that's good. So the two of you kind of raised yourself? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I think the, the tone of the house was, you guys, your job is to raise yourselves <laughs> and our job is to make money. Wow. So did you live in style and uh, have everything a kid could want? No, no, I don't think yeah. so. I think the best thing my dad ever did is when I asked him for something and he said, no. And I said, well, how can I get it? He says, well, get a job. And I said, fine. Hmm. And I got a paper out and I went, my goodness, this is hard mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. I said, no wonder my dad's so stingy. This is terrible. Mm-hmm. I don't so it changed my whole outlook. And I can still see the stack of quarters sitting in front of me, you know, as I give them to the grocer to give me dollar bills. Hmm. When you drank uh, initially, 
What were the circumstances under which you drank? Was it to fit in or was it to blot out something or to make you change your frame of mind? Was there any one major reason? I think really the really the real reason I think I was actually very shy mm -hmm. and I didn't really feel like I fit in sober mm -hmm. and I felt like when I drank I did fit in. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm was there a crowd that you ran with that drank or what was that your social life like? Mm, oh yeah, pr pretty much I, uh you know in that environment uh, everybody drank and uh, I was the long hitter and we had a short hitter mm -hmm. and couple average guys mm -hmm. and I was always the driver because I was the last one to get drunk and I'd get everybody home and so you were the guy drinking people under the table yeah until it until it stopped <laughs> until it stopped so <laughs> so right. you, so you were a kid of the late 50s and 60s uh with everything that was going on during that tumultuous uh decade uh what kind of experiences did you did you have beyond alcohol with uh marijuana or or drugs of different types uh actually um this will sound strange but i lived i moved to arizona when i was 14 mm -hmm. and people who smoked marijuana were considered of a lower class mm -hmm. and the groups that i knew didn't didn't use marijuana oh and one thing i'd have to say is i decided at some point along the line said, you know, as much trouble as I can get in with alcohol, I don't need anything else. So I stuck with the alcohol. So you, you had a you had the opportunity but made the conscious choice not to engage with marijuana or other drugs? Yeah. I, I remember coming home uh, from school one day and this guy named Jerome lived in an apartment complex with a tailor uh, in the mm -hmm. basement. And he had an older brother and he really, he I never met right. the guy, but the the guy really looked up to his brother, and one day he said to me, Alex, he said, you know, my brother has to take something to go to sleep. And I thought that was kind of strange. Mm -hmm. Okay, And a few months later, he said, my brother has to take something to wake up. Huh. And uh, sometime after that, before the end of that school year, he said, my brother died. Oh, geez. And that stuck with me. So that pro that's probably another reason why I didn't go the drug route. What was life like in general throughout your your years of drinking? And, and from what age did you drink until you stopped? Uh, really, um, uh, some people say uh, periodic. Some say binge mm -hmm. drinkers. Uh, I I almost hardly drank at all. And then we'd go out or we'd do something, and I I it was it was kind of like I had like a fuse. Mm. And and I would light the fuse, and sometime it would get to the dynamite, and sometime it wouldn't. Mm. And if it did, a lot of really crazy things happened. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, they're just unbelievable things would happen. Just I would actually think I was probably insane when I drank like mm. that. Is that was that a turning point or a, a new realization? No, I I was president of my pledge class, and every weekend we had those parties uh -huh. and. When I finally became an active, I said, God, I can't do this. This is getting, this is going over the top. But I, I never really thought about being an alcoholic. I just said, this is crazy. I can't drink like this, you know? And then I had a lot of responsibility, so I just didn't. Hmm. So I guess uh, the term in the program is uh, I white knuckled it a lot. I just didn't drink hmm. 
because I did not want to go over the, I didn't want to light that keg of dynamite. I just didn't want to light it. And I knew that if I didn't drink at all, it wouldn't happen. Mm. And then I, I thought that if I could control the number of drinks mm-hmm. that I had, that that wouldn't happen. Were you able to control it or? Uh... Yeah, I, I really was. I mean, mm. when I got to college, I said, well, I can't, or when I got out of college and I, I got into law school, I, uh, said, I can't, I can't do this in law school. It's too busy. And I, and I didn't, I didn't drink most of the way through law mm-hmm. school. And then when I got out, I said, Oh my God, I'm a lawyer. I can't be drinking. I, I might black out and, uh, spill my guts. So I didn't drink very much at all, but I couldn't drink that. You understand? I just could yeah, not. So there was a high, a, a hiatus between the drinking that you did, uh, in your teenage years, let's say in high school and at the end of passing the bar and and becoming a lawyer yeah yeah so when did you pick when did you pick it up again though uh oh it was always on and uh-huh. off pretty much throughout the years uh-huh. you know, there are different events I'd, I'd do something i'd say well i can't do that mm. again or oh my goodness that, that's too bad i can't do that mm. and there'd be a couple of years in between and then all of a sudden i'd pick it up again mm-hmm. and and i could go on for a while and then it would do it again and finally i just uh you know and then i just started getting really sad mm-hmm. and and uh then i remembered back to that fella that mm-hmm. uh, i saw and i said well that's the only thing i've seen it worked and i said well maybe i can mm-hmm. well i had one little brush with aa my secretary had a problem i thought and mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. partner couldn't smell the alcohol and i said she's coming to work and there's alcohol on her and mm-hmm. so i asked the same fella i said hey do they have like open aa meetings or anything that I could go and find out. And, uh, so I went to an open AA meeting and, uh, I, I really didn't, um, I didn't think I absorbed a whole lot. The only thing I remembered from that first meeting is a guy stood up and, uh, uh-huh. it was an open meeting. So he didn't say he was an alcoholic, but he did say, he said, I saw a white Bentley convertible with the top down and the motor running. Uh-huh. And he said, I didn't steal it. And everybody got up and clapped. And I went, oh, my God, where wow. am I? You know? So you you went to that open AA meeting for your secretary to learn about it, but not for yourself. Yes, yeah. that's, that's exactly. quite a way, quite exactly. a way to get to uh, to AA. So what would you say your, your bottom looked like when you made the decision to try to get some help? And, and did you feel like you needed the help at the time? Well, two things happened. Uh, I can't remember which one was first, mm-hmm. but. I was uh, inspecting a five-story uh, building, and there was like a fence around the building, and there was uh, the tower rolled up along the side of that fence. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was expect, I was inspecting that area of tar, mm-hmm. and something said, "Why don't you jump off?" And it scared me, and I got off that roof like right now. And the other thing that happened is I started having nightmares like five nights mm-hmm. in a row of a bottle of Chevas and a 44 Magnum. Hmm. And that's when I went to my first meeting for myself. And I felt pretty much like I was beaten, hmm. that I I had no way out. And I really didn't want to go to the I absolutely didn't. Yeah. I, I was going to say, it's interesting that uh, those occurred to you when they did. And your first thought of stopping was... AA, or did you try some other things before AA, like counseling or psychiatric? No, no, I, oh. I just, I just stopped. I'm, I didn't, I didn't identify myself as an alcoholic because I could stop whenever I want, go a couple of years mm. without drinking. I just couldn't drink. That's all. 
Hmm. But I wasn't happy. I didn't have a good life. I didn't enjoy myself. No. And that's really what I came in for, I guess. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I, I would like to say parenthetically that the fellow that basically sh showed me the light lost the light after three years. He went back out, and as far as I know, he's still drinking. Oh, that's sad. That's sad. Well, that's an interesting way to get to AA, Alex. Um, you know, a lot I, I'd mentioned in the last podcast with Adam M. Uh, my belief that some people get the program organically. They they don't necessarily need to go through treatment or have interventions or whatever and just find it. That's how it was for me. But mine was at the end of just a miserable, miserable time and going downhill very rapidly. Uh, it's your story's quite interesting from the standpoint that you still wanted to go to AA to make sure that you stayed quit or what's a good representation of that? Well, I, I just, I didn't want that to happen. I didn't want to start drinking again and go over the, do something crazy again. I think that was really the thing I didn't want to, hmm. I, I, I went, the first meeting I went to on my own, I said, I just want to learn how to drink three drinks. Hmm. And and nobody laughed at me, and I'm sure glad they didn't because I made it never come back. Yeah, that's one. That's a recurring theme in the early stories uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've noticed in doing the Big Book podcast is some of the early members, their interest in coming to meetings and getting involved in AA was they wanted to learn how to drink responsibly. And of course, we humor people like that in meetings. But if you stick around long enough, you realize that uh, the AA is more than just about. Uh, not drinking. So, what were the what were the first uh, couple of years like for you in AA? Uh, I I didn't identify myself when I came in. They they'll say, "Is this your first meeting?" I I did not admit that it was my first meeting, mm -hmm. and I I didn't pick up any chips, hmm. and I because I didn't trust myself and I didn't want to fail. Yeah. So the first chip I actually picked up was a nine month chip. Hmm. But once I got in, I realized how desperate I was. And I actually went to some meetings. I, sometimes I went to two and three meetings a day. Hmm. And there's a, people talk about going to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I thought, mm -hmm. if people need 90 meetings in 90 days, I'm going to do 365 meetings <laughs> in 365 days. And believe it or not, I did it. Is that just your, your, your personality that drives that kind of thing? Or were you trying to beat a record? Or? No, no. I just, you know, I just figured I was that crazy. Huh. You know, that, that uh, step about being restored to sanity. I wanted to, I thought it was a nice thing to say uh, restored to sanity. I'm not sure I ever was until I got in the program. Well, looking back at, at, at the early years in AA, and I like to ask people this question to just kind of gauge how comfortable they feel in the fellowship. In, in your early days of AA, um, what kind of things did you find helpful and useful at meetings, and what things did you find objectionable and maybe even a little repulsive? Well, we had a guy named Doc, and he was very bright. And at the end of the mo meeting, he did like a little internal summary. He didn't mention who said what, but he would kind of go over the whole the whole meeting and kind of summarize everything. And I thought, that was really a beautiful way to do things. I really like that. Yeah. This was a, a very small meeting. We, For some reason, we always had about 13 mm -hmm. people. Not the same 13, but 13 just about all the time. Sure. And we really had some personalities in there that I really liked. Yeah, I remember Doc, and uh, I went to meetings early on with him. He was he was really big into being inclusive of, of newcomers. And I remember being early on in the program, maybe within my first year or two, that 
I went to one of his meetings, uh, one that he was more involved in, and he was so welcoming and so appreciative of my being in the room. It really made a big difference for me. And did you get with a group of people you hung with or was AA uh, an integral part of your life? Not entirely, but I did I did find a sponsor and the, mm-hmm. the guy that I, they said, find somebody that has something that you want. Mm-hmm. And this fellow had two companies and he'd play racquetball at five o'clock in the morning and then he'd go to a 630 meeting mm-hmm. and run one company till noon and then he'd have lunch and run mm-hmm. the other company from one to five. And I liked the early meetings because it me to me it seemed like the people who wanted mm-hmm. to have another life beside that life, some people spread you know, spread so much time in the program that they don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I wanted to have my real life and I wanted to have that life too. Yeah. And I thought getting it started in the morning did it. And I also never missed a meeting, of course. Use the term uh, real life. I, I had some sponsees over the years. From time to time, they'd say, so how much of this work do I have to do before I can go back to real life? And uh, I always say, this is real life. <laughs> what you're doing right now is real life. And it's always interesting when people yeah. talk about AA being kind of mutually exclusive from the rest of uh, the rest of their lives. But um did did you find it easy or hard during that first year to assimilate with AA? I found it pretty easy, really, because it seemed like in the beginning, I think what really made me think I had a problem with alcohol was listening to the stories of the people. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was a little different. And all of a sudden, they'd tell their stories. Right. I did all the same things they did. I said, well, gee whiz, if I did the same things they did, what does that make me? You know, one of the one of the things that I encountered early on that made me feel a little bit iffy about AA, or maybe a lot iffy, was when I walked into the rooms and saw those big wall uh, window shade things with the steps on it. And in reading through them in my first meeting or two, I saw the word God, and that that bugged me. That I got oh, yeah. very I was very objectionable to that because yeah. oh, my yeah. whole life people were always trying to shove whatever belief of the day they had down my throat. And I felt very intimidated by the God part. Absolutely. What was your what was your perception? Oh, I was absolutely the same. Absolutely the same. Uh-huh. I used to think that the only thing that a church was good for was to have a basement where they could have an <laughs> AA meeting. And that's uh, <laughs> true. And, and I and I actually said at a meeting, I said, that's a great book. If they just took that God out of it, it would really be good. Uh-huh. And th- what th- th- see, that's the thing you mentioned, exclu- inclusive. No one laughed at me. And I, I just, I don't know why they didn't, but I'm glad they didn't because I'm kind of, I have to say, I'm kind of sensitive, yeah. you know. And if they'd have laughed at me, that would have been it. I'd have been out the door. Yeah. And then I would have had anger and resentment and yeah. I could have probably never stopped drinking. It's interesting the way you tie the tie that in with the way you felt about about uh, seeing God in the steps. I I kind of felt the same way, but I wasn't doing any of the work during my first year, and I didn't get a sponsor till almost the end of my first year. I, I and I objected to the God part of the program, so I never had a chance to experience anything that looked like or felt like spirituality. Did you have any spiritual sense in the early part of your program? I don't really think I did until I got to the fourth step. Huh. 
And another, I forgot to say this, when I picked the sponsor that I picked, he said that he was an atheist. And I went, well, good. I'll use him. And I got to the fourth step and I had a engineer table, nice white, Uh you know, plastic or whatever, and had a lamp on it. And I had two nice legal pads, nice yellow ones, Mm -hmm. and about two or three 2H pencils. And I sat down and I looked at it. Mm -hmm. And I was, I couldn't do it. So I called my sponsor and I said, hey, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, pray about it. And I said, hey, you told me you were an atheist. Now, you know what? He said, ah, I don't know it, but it works. (laughs) So I did it. And I I am not a good Mm -hmm. praying person. I'm still not. But I prayed about it and I wrote the whole thing out. And when I finished it, I got up and I went outside and I recognized uh, trees that I hadn't thought about in years yeah. and thought about how beautiful they were and uh-huh. how happy I was to get that far. Yeah. And I don't, I don't usually say this, but I think really the steps drive, yeah. they drove me through. I mean, I had to keep on going because if I did one and I didn't get to the next one, you know, Maybe my higher power was saying, all right, Alex, it's time to do two. Or, yeah. all right, now it's time to do three. And particularly getting to four and five, the pressure was so great to get through that four step. Huh. I knew I had to do it. And then, of course, the obvious pressure that comes from getting through step five. My sponsor had me do the same thing. Uh, when I sat down with the fourth step, I was I felt like I was mentally blocked and it was too big, like trying to eat an elephant. And he said something to me that I've said to my sponsees over the years, and that is, before you start writing, just say a little prayer. And in that prayer, just ask God to guide the point of that pencil across the sheet of paper. And that when you're done, you put the pencil down and you're done. And it was such a gentle but effective thing to say to me because I tried it. And like you, I I actually, uh, I actually got writing. So how long did it... Um, take you to go through all of the steps i think probably a year mm-hmm. the first time mm-hmm. and then i i went through them again completely uh, later on in the program for different reasons so we're we're talking about um late 80s now and you were married uh during that period of time what kind of impact did you find getting sober had on your marriage and other relationships in your life you know uh, to be honest you know most of my changes were all internal I don't really know uh, if you'd ask her. I don't know if she'd uh-huh. say I'm any different than I was before. But most of my changes were within myself. For an example, I used to do things yeah. before because I wanted the accolades for doing them. Mm-hmm. And now I do them because I like to do them. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying listening to this show, I'd like to invite you to check out the Big Book Podcast, the free audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging and inspiring word-for-word reading of all 11 chapters and personal stories, including more than 50 original stories that were left out of the third and fourth editions. If you've never read the first or second editions, these amazing stories will be brand new to you. Subscribe to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit bigbookpodcast.com and listen to your heart's content. And share it with your friends, sponsees, and anyone you know who has a desire to stop drinking. It may be the only version of the big book they ever hear. Okay, we're back. Was there any time during your first couple, three, maybe three to five years that you felt like maybe you had enough AA or that you heard everything you needed to hear or 
No, no, I, I really, uh-huh. I, I always say I smell the coffee. I, I mean, I really, I really, I knew I was in the right place. And I, I personally, I've never seen yeah. anything more powerful in my life. But I would have to say, you said five. One thing I have to say is a guy that I knew uh-huh. was a pathological liar. Uh, and uh, we used to, mm-hmm. we used to hunt together every year and, I, mm-hmm. he lied to me about something and I got so angry about it that I wanted a drink hmm. and I was going to the bar hmm. and something made me mm-hmm. drive past that exit and end up hmm. at the post Oak club again. And there's a saying that says sometime the only thing between you and a drink is the meeting. And I think that, as I mentioned, I went to so many meetings, yeah. I realized that that's what I wanted to do. And I I don't think, so the thing mm-hmm. is, we always say it's one day at a time. And the thing is, it really is. I have seen people uh, give up the program mm-hmm. anywhere along the line. And it's you just, in my thing, I always say, yeah. you got to keep your foot on the gas. You don't have to floor it. You just keep your foot on the gas and it'll keep going. Around year five, I think, you had kind of a life-changing experience, uh, or 91. Tell me about that. Well, I, I, yeah. well I, I, started going, I started going downhill, and I was having a hard time going to work. I just, I don't know. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. Mentally or physically, or what was going on? It's hard to say. It was everything. And, and the bottom line is I uh, thought maybe I didn't have a good program. So I started the whole program over. Huh. And I worked with my sponsor and I worked with his sponsor and his sponsor mm-hmm. sponsor and redid all the steps, redid everything. And, uh, and somewhere along the line, uh, somebody told me to take an MRI and I found out that I had multiple sclerosis. Oh my. And I think I told you that I think the day that I really got the firm diagnosis, I was, I got in my car and my, my house is the fourth house on the block. Mm-hmm. And, and something I said, well, should I drink over this? And by the time I got to the corner, I said, no, I'm not going to drink over this. Wow. And I didn't, and I haven't. Because there's another saying that says there's nothing a drink can't make worse. Yeah. And I believe that. Well, that's an interesting revelation to have right after you find out about a, a, a diagnosis. Uh, but as you progressed into, as, as that particular disease progressed, did that resolution stay yeah. firm or no, did it no, waver? I always, what was it like? I, I've always known that a drink wouldn't make it any better. Hmm. Hmm. And it just kept getting worse. And I think, I think you remember when I could walk, you know, and I, I remember when you, the day you came in, I still remember that. Yeah. Cause we went to the same club together and you were walking fine. And then you started walking a little bit, uh, diff, uh some difficulty walking and then you had a cane and then you had the, uh, I guess, the wheelchair. And, of course, the club was down in the basement, so getting down there must have been difficult. Yeah, it was. It really was. So that happened where? About year five, year six? was. No, I, actually, I came in in 85, and I think I was actually firmly diagnosed either in 1991 or 92. But there was a lot of fiddling around. I mean, you know, I was, like, like I mentioned, I was just, I just couldn't. I couldn't seem to perform my, my work anymore. And, uh, so that's, that's how that went. I just, it was probably the most horrible time in my life. 
I always, when, when I was new in sobriety, even within the first several years, uh, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind, and maybe it's the alcoholism talking, but I wondered whether something could go so wrong or something so dire could occur in my life, like a, a disease like MS or the death of a child or a spouse that that would make it okay for me to drink again, that uh, if things got bad enough, I could it'd be all right and that everybody would understand and, and so forth. And I think if any of those things had happened early on for me, I, th- I kind of think maybe I would have, I don't know. But fortunately, one of the advantages of going to a lot of meetings is that you get to see a lot of people going through all that stuff and staying sober. You've been a big inspiration to a lot of people for a really, really long time, Alex. And you, when I'm with you, the attention is not on the MS or the fact that you're in a motor chair or whatever. It's about other stuff. And we talk about the program. We talk about spirituality, about our childhoods. And I think just the fact that you're showing how to live gracefully with a completely debilitating disease. I wonder the connection to your program, the quality of your program, and the quality of your living with MS. Do you find that there's a direct correlation between those two or some sort of relationship? Uh, There probably is. You know, uh, the program over time teaches us how to live with unsolvable problems. Yeah. And seeing other people slip and seeing other people suffer, you just realize it's just not, it's just not really Hmm. an option. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier to be in the program than it is to be out of it. And, um, I, I, I really thought that particular event, I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's not really the alcohol. Maybe it's just an MS attack. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. Somewhere along the line, probably around the time I came in the program, I said, well, I don't care if it's MS. I don't care if it isn't mm-hmm. MS. I'm going to do this. And that's what I've done. Yeah. So, I mean, I could have really easily said, well, uh, the, it's not the alcohol, it's CMS. So I, I guess I can just keep drinking. You know, but I, I just didn't do that. You know, and I, and I, you know, some, I'd like, I'd say, well, maybe sometime I do think about that, but it's not worth it. It just isn't worth it. I get that. And I often wonder about when we're looking at the unsolvables in our life, whether it's, I mean, in, in, in my case, I've got, uh, you know, and have battled clinical depression my whole life. And um, it's, it's being treated and um, I'm about as good today living with it as I can be. But Knowing that that alcoholism is a treatable disease that need never come back as long as we continue to do the things we're doing, that must be kind of tough when you think about your AA part of your life and then your MS part of your life, one being solvable to a certain extent and the other one not. But can you? Yeah, that that really is. You know, I think somewhere along the line, uh, I've come to the realization that some things are unsolvable mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I've heard people say things like babies die, so there's no God. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I don't know everything mm-hmm. and that I can't know everything, but I do know what I know. Yeah. And in the area of alcohol and alcoholism, uh, 
it really doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. I try to sponsor people and I go, well, I don't, gosh, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic or mm-hmm. not. And I'd say, well, maybe you're not. Why don't you just stop and mm-hmm. see? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say in the book that you have to be an alcoholic. It says that you have to have the desire to stop drinking. Yeah. Yeah, the only requirement for membership. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I don't know if it ever helps. I say, well, look, look, don't worry about it. Just don't drink. And and if it's not a problem for you, then you're probably yeah. not. And and I think that gives them a little relief. But then when they realize they can't stop, then they go, hmm, maybe I do have a problem. Yeah. But no. see, my but yeah, here's the thing: there are alcoholics that can't stop. Mm-hmm. But now, why? Even though I was able to stop for a couple of years once in a while. Why did I start again? Mm-hmm. And then why did I stay stopped? Mm-hmm. So I would say, why did I start? I don't really know. And then why did I stop? And why did I stay top? And that is that higher power that you and I didn't want to yeah. want to acknowledge. That higher power that for some reason, when I started going to the meetings, I never decided that I wanted to go drink again. So you never questioned God's work or presence in your life when you were diagnosed with an incurable disease of MS? No, because I, you know, the thing is, if we think we can understand God, then we must be God because we cannot understand any of this stuff. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard people say uh, with this COVID, they'll say there's no God because they're COVID. And I said, wait a minute, God didn't start COVID. We did. Mm-hmm. You know, and the thing is, why doesn't God stop it? I don't know why God doesn't start it. And I'm not going to spend my time Mm -hmm. thinking about something I can't answer. I've got a lot of things I can answer, and I'm going to work on those. That's a marvelous way to think. And in a lot of ways, you're, you're, you're a terrific example of how to live a really good and strong program in the midst of also battling other things, you know, particularly MS. But I, I know you've had other challenges too, financial and, and uh, that sort of thing throughout your sobriety. Can you uh, talk about a few of the instances maybe where you faced some hard problems that tried your sobriety? Well, when I first found out that I had MS and I, and I was failing, I, uh, as you mentioned financially, I, I was going in the hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, my overhead, I was making my overhead, but I wasn't making anything else. And I I took my wallet out one day and something said, Alex, there's always going to be enough money in this wallet for what you need. Hmm. And I went, what in the world was that? Hmm. And I wish it said all the money you want. <laughs> but it said all the money you need. Yeah. And uh, I've had all the money that I need. Hmm. And I didn't. You know, I don't know where that came from, mm-hmm. but it did. And these are the kind of things that happen. Mm. And when we look at the step 12, it talks about a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. And some people have the immediate kind and some people have the educational kind. And I think mine was probably both mm. because I've looked back in my life now and the things that I've done that I thought I did. And I did, I realize now that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I don't know why I'm still here, mm-hmm. and that's not my job either. But I've done some really foolhardy, really crazy things. And I thought it was because I was a great driver or that I was gutsy or something. And now I look back, and part of that spiritual awakening is realizing that I did have some power that was guiding me and protecting me and saving me from things. 
and I don't understand it. I, I really don't understand it. Yeah, that gradual awareness is just uh, a beautiful thing. I know mine, mine was of the same variety as well, a gradual awareness, and it's sometimes more than others. And um, every now and then I think uh, you know, I'm suffering from spiritual narcolepsy in the, in the sense that, you know, some days I feel really spiritually awake, some days I feel really spiritually not so awake and uh, kind of vacillate between the two. But I know God is working in Absolutely. my life all the time. It's just that some demonstrations of that are a little bit more uh, stark than others. And uh, yeah. that, that's really amazing. The way I, the way I say that I have like, the, the higher power in my life, it's I'm like an, I'm like an elliptical orbit. I go closer and farther and closer mm-hmm. and farther. And I, it's not comfortable when I go farther mm-hmm. and I, I don't like it and I don't want it to happen, but it does. Mm-hmm. And I just have to live through that too. Yeah. And I don't know exactly what I can do to change that. Yeah. But it does change. It does go back and forth and I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, one of the one of the things in prepping for uh our discussion today and this has been beautiful. I really appreciate. It. This helps me get to know you better even though we we know each other pretty well. This is just kind of neat. It's always neat when I go to a, a speaker meeting uh be, of people I know from regular discussion meetings because in a discussion meeting you're getting to know people 3 to 5 minutes at a time, little bits and pieces of their life and it's always interesting when I go to a speaker meeting with that person because it's like putting all the pieces together and getting a a real picture. Uh, one of the things I had on my list of things to kind of ask you about was, you know, some of the challenges that you faced and how your AA program helped you get through them. But I realize for as long as I've known you, you face some challenges every single day that most people would just, I mean, they would go to pieces if they had to. And I just wondered if you could, if you could comment on that a little bit. You know, uh, it's it's the whole it's the whole thing. It's it's like it's not one thing. I spend a lot of my time. I've I found there's two things a person can do. Mm-hmm. They can worry about themselves, mm-hmm. or they can worry about others. And the people I find that worry about themselves are the most unhappy people I know. Mm. And the people that I know that worry about others are usually happier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I try to spend my time, you know, being of service and helping others and being concerned about other people. Mm. And uh, people say, well, why do you help people? I just say, well, I can't help myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I try as to help in, others. As in not even being able to get in and out of bed or in and out of the shower. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's. A, that's I mean, I, I, I can only observe what that's like because I've I've been around yeah. you uh, a number of times. But so, if you had to talk about the some of the biggest gifts that you've experienced during your sobriety, what what would that look like? I think uh, that I didn't kill myself. Huh. I th- I think when you have dreams about forty four magnums and something tell you to jump off a roof that's a pretty big gift right there in itself Mm -hmm. and the fact that i never challenged alcohol again Mm. i mean it's like it's not i'd like to draw the parallel between a a problem drinker that could not stop drinking Mm -hmm. and one that says well maybe i'll just have a drink now 
yeah. a year later or something. And then all of a sudden uh-huh. you find out running from the police, running from the National uh-huh. Guard, having a head-on collision with a tank. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, none of that stuff has happened since. Hmm. And that same thing that stopped me from being a periodic stops the everyday drinker mm-hmm. from drinking. It's the same thing. It just works a little differently. Hmm. Hmm. Because you'd ask yourself, well, well, if you can just stop, why don't you stay stopped? Not that easy. Nope. Yeah. And this did it. This this program did it. And it, it makes me realize that I'm not here alone and that there is something else. And I don't really have to understand it. Hmm. And if I ever do, I'll call you. <laughs> so when, when Bill Wilson was asked about how does AA work? And he said, it works just fine. That's really that's really what you're talking about. If you had to, uh, what do you say to newcomers when you encounter them, either in meetings or online these days, when you have the opportunity to chat with them one-on-one, say somebody brand new or somebody in their early stages of sobriety, what, what kind of things are you saying to them uh, in an effort to be uh, attractive and an, an example of what sobriety can be? I, every situation is, is really different, but I, I always try to try to bring it around to a meeting and a meeting that I'll invite them to and a meeting that I'll go to. Mm-hmm. And I'll let them know that I do. I go to meetings and that uh, anybody that asks, I will tell them that it is the most powerful thing that I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. It's probably the only thing that's ever worked. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first couple of steps will stop you from doing the physical drinking. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the steps help me to grow up and become a man instead of a little pedantic child yelling and screaming about what I want. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. And to have that realization is really a beautiful thing. And it's an example and a guiding light for people coming into the program when they get to see somebody with the amount of time in the program that you have being able to live your life in the way that you are with the challenges that you have. And uh, so I'm like you. When, when I meet people coming in, I mean, we can only be so attractive. We, we can't get anybody sober. We can't make them drink. But I think there are ways to make people feel a little bit more comfortable in meetings. And, and uh, I see you do that in meetings. Uh, and I try to make sure people feel welcome. I love the way you do it. I, you know, you're a lot more outgoing than I am. I'm, I'm slightly shyer and I, more shy and I have a hard time doing that, and I watch you do it, and I'm just, I marvel at the fact the way you do that. I think it's really well, I, great. I, I thank you for saying that. It, it means a lot to me in my program. Um, what do you say to people, people, especially people you know who have slipped and come back? What, how do you engage them? Well, I, I always, I am, just, I rejoice. I am so happy that they're back, because as long as two things they have to do, they have to be alive and they have to come back. Mm-hmm. And if they do those things, I rejoice. I don't care what they did. I don't care why they slipped. I don't pay any attention to that. I'm just happy to have them back doing it again. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times people that go out and slip, they don't slip again because they realized what they had done. And they don't want that to happen again. Well, and you and I have both known, in fact, some of the meetings we attend together are inclusive of men who have had significant periods of sobriety who have slipped. And you're right, uh, observing them coming back, especially if it was a really terrible slip, observing them coming back and really being willing to do all of the things that it looked like they were doing, but 
maybe weren't. Uh, but now to see them really digging in and making sure that they're centered in the program is a is a beautiful experience. You know, Howard, one one thing I did notice, I think that I don't know if this will fit into the program that we're doing, but right. what I've seen a lot are people who seem to be doing well mm-hmm. and they get too busy. Hmm. You know, they'll come back and they'll they'll get a job and then they'll go to school and they'll meet a companion Mm -hmm. and then they'll get a second job and then they'll get active in the church or they'll do something. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden the A program starts to slip Hmm. and then they slip. Hmm. I think if I ever get somebody else to sponsor again, I'll say, don't get too busy. Yeah. Because if this, if if this loses its priority, it can go away. It's like, it's like a plant. If you don't water it and don't give it sunlight, it's going to die. Yeah. Well, that's why I think we're often at more risk having the disease of alcoholism when things are going really, really well or that we're really, really busy and successful because there are excellent reasons that I think my disease feeds off of for saying, well, you don't need to go to a meeting, that meeting, because you've got this important business thing going on or or things are going so well at home. Why don't you just stay home with the wife and the kids? And, and, yeah, and, right. and the disease will agree with that and set up all the clear the way for you to, to do that. And then before you know it, you're, there was a guy in the meeting today who talked about, uh, you know, he hadn't been to a meeting close to a month and he could see it affecting him. But the reason he stopped going uh, as frequently was because things were going so well. And that that scares me to death when a, it, it's like when people say they can't get to a meeting because they're so successful and busy at work, it seems almost counterintuitive to say to them, you need to go to a meeting doesn't it? I mean, your life is going so well. You got a, really? you got a beautiful wife, yeah. a big house, lots of money in the bank, two really nice cars, and your kids are all great. And man, you should really get yourself into a meeting. It sounds counterintuitive. and But but to me, the, the best thing about saying that is that if you don't go for yourself, at least go to be an example of staying sober and good things occurring in life. Right? That's excellent. Very good. That's exactly what it yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. So. It really is. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts about trying to do AA in this period of COVID with Zoom. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you think we're going to come through this? I think I think we're going to be fine. I just I have to say, and I want to acknowledge that I am suffering from a lot of grief and a lot of sadness mm-hmm. because the resonance in the world right now. I mean, I never thought in my life I would see myself praying for the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really rough, and 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 seeing the numbers. I mean, uh, the number of. Uh, I grew up in the city of Milwaukee, and uh, I said to somebody, it's like being in uh, Green Bay and going to Chicago and driving through Milwaukee and finding out that everybody's dead. Mm. I mean, everybody in the city of Milwaukee would be dead. That's how many people died. Mm-hmm. And Milwaukee's a big town. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a lot of grief. And uh, uh, John Dunn said, no man is an island unto himself. If it diminishes my fellow man, it diminishes me. Mm. And it, it does affect me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm having a problem with that yeah. because I am powerless over it right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, you know, that these inoculations are helpful. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing people still plunging their head into the sand yeah. and not wearing masks and populating areas at close distances. And yeah. I can't I can't stop them. I, you know, well, and you can't you and, can't go near them because you've got a number of comorbidities and other things. 
Yeah. And uh, are, are you going to get the vaccine or what are your thoughts I, on I that? I don't know. I've got to find out exactly what it acts on. If it acts on the T cell, I'm going to have to be very careful because with MS, they don't know if the T cell is damaged and it's, you know, and attacks the myelin or is the myelin damaged and the T cells are attacking it hmm. or is the myelin bad and the T cells bad attacking the, you know, oh, attacking the T cells. Yeah, that's a lot to think of. So about. then you say, well, do you think this, this miracle drug will do this or will it do that? Or will it make me worse? I mean, I had a horrible exacerbation in 2007 that uh, paralyzed me from my nose down oh. and, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to have that happen again. Yeah, I can imagine that would be a horrible and, and, thing. And, you know, that's a real risk. I mean, that is a real risk. Yeah. We, we meaning you and I, both know a number of people from the program who have passed away. and Exactly. From, from the disease. And I like to think that my involvement in AA and the way it's enriched my life and been something that I can grab onto in tough times, I like to think that that kind of uh, you know, the participation in the program, what I've learned from the program helps me with the right mindset to get through this. And I think it has. Absolutely. I think it has. I mean, I think so, too. I, I almost feel guilty about it because I think a lot of people are suffering a lot more than we are. Well, we, you know, we've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And so we know how to do it. But unfortunately, a virus doesn't re doesn't react to just doing certain things it, it doesn't discriminate but yeah that's that's just kind of a scary thought well alex this has been really really terrific i'm so glad that you were able to be here today and share your wisdom and your thoughts and you're you're just a beautiful man i love you and you're uh an inspiration to me and people who i know and sponsor and uh again many many thanks for doing this well good it's a great idea i love doing it thanks a lot howard Thanks, Alex. Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Tell them how to subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, and all other podcast providers. I'd be grateful if you can leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, recoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.